So if you would, this morning, you can turn with me to our text. Our text will be coming from the book of Zechariah, the book of Zechariah. So we're taking a trip back into time, back into the Old Testament, and you can find Zechariah. Uh, so Matthew's the first, book of, the first book of the New Testament. Before that, you have Malachi, and then right before that, you have Zechariah, or we have it available for you on the screen. So before we jump into our passage, uh, for those of you who've been a part of this series that we're walking through this late spring, where this, uh, the past couple Sundays, we've been looking at Christianity's biggest questions, Christianity's biggest questions. And the thing that I love about this series is that uh, we acknowledge and we come to the Lord with our doubts, with our curiosities, and the Lord is not afraid of us to come and to inquire in his temple. For King David said he came to meditate, gaze upon the beauty and the majesty of the Lord, and to inquire. So as we inquire, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 of the book of Zechariah, let us read the word of God together. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, that being Zechariah, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on the single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This morning, I would like for us to excavate this question on the grounds of this text. Why is the cross necessary. Why is the cross necessary? Let us pray. O oh Lord, Father, creator of heaven and earth, would you speak to us in this hour, Lord? Lord, would you hide me behind the cross? Don't let anything in me want to steal your glory. Shall your voice be heard, your presence felt, 
we increased in our love for you and our devotion to you. Lord God, and would you tell us once more of our need for the cross. In Jesus' name, we pray this morning. Amen. You may be seated. So the other night, I had a dream, which is rare for me, very rare for me. My wife, Aaliyah, my beautiful wife, she dreams a lot. Um, it's very on the regular for her to uh, have a dream, but I don't. I think, in fact, I daydream so much by the time it's ready to sh shut it down, my brain says, no mas, no more, no more, no more. We're going to sleep. So I don't dream much. However, the other night the Lord permitted me this dream, which I would like to share with you. And as much as I would love to say this dream was in the kindred spirit of Martin Luther King Jr., and it was full of hope and uh, a future for a brighter day, this dream was not. This dream had pained me. This dream felt rather doubly dark to me. So to keep as dreams can be a little bit all over the place, and if you know me, I can be all over the place, I found it best that I record this dream. And I would like to read it to you. Like most of our dreams, my dream was too filled with subjectivity, layered with much ambiguity and strangeness. However, this is what I can recall and best communicate how it occurred to me. I found myself back in Tampa on the west side of the city, not too far off of one of the main roads called Dale Mabry. How I got there, I don't know. But what I did know was that I wanted to go home. However, I had no car and was forced to walk back, which is typically a 20 to 25 minute drive. I knew this walk would take me a while, a minute. It was also late, very late in the night. I don't know what time, but the moon was bright. As I walked, I found myself taking a lot of back roads and streets. All of a sudden, I then turned down one block where I was alone. Then all of a sudden, I noticed someone wearing a hoodie crossing the yard and onto the street in front of me where I was. As I trailed behind this person, their pace was so slow that I naturally found myself drawing closer and closer to them until suddenly they snapped their head around with a knife in their hand and asked what I was doing. I then noticed that this person was actually only a child, maybe a teen, anywhere between 11 and 13 years old. I told this young man that I was no threat and I was headed home, yet that wasn't convincing enough. So he rather raised the switchblade above his head, intensified his grip as if to strike me, now with fear in my heart, I raised my voice and pleaded again, I'm serious, I'm serious. I live on 23rd Street. It's the street that's shaped like an L. If you ever visit our house in Tampa, you know that our street was rather short and indeed shaped with a hard L turn at the end. And it wasn't until then when the young man facing me released his guard 
and let me go on my way. Moments later, I would awake. As I opened up my eyes from this dream, I was seized by only one feeling. It was a feeling of shame. I woke up ashamed of the fear in my heart. I felt ashamed of my action, or should I say my lack of action. I mean, let's be real. Why was I so afraid of a little kid who stood before me with a knife? I'm supposed to be a man, right? I was supposed to be willing to fight, but I didn't. You see, our dreams harbor those things deep within. Rather than being driven by our mind's sharper sense of intellect and understanding and pulling from the archives of comprehension in our brain, our dreams rather expose those hidden things within our heart. Things that our more conscious thinking has a way of burying, hiding, denying, and running from. However, the Lord had a word for me in this dream. He brought to remembrance why I first began to know why the cross is necessary. You see, at 13 years old, I had an encounter with a young man who was about 11 and I 13, and he had a knife in his hand. I indeed was struck by that knife, and I would run, and I would flee, and I would fear for my life. From that moment, I would begin a three-year journey seeking and exploring and trying to find the truth, the answer to, is God real? What will be of my soul when I pass from this earth? And then that developed and was born into the question, why is the cross necessary? However, I share not just my testimony this morning, but I would like for us to enter into the dream of another man, a man and a prophet of God who received a dream and a vision from God, which I believe we also can be guided and understand exactly why the cross is necessary. So, the book of Zechariah, I don't spend much time in that book, and I'm sure for many of us, Zechariah isn't the first thing we think of when we want to open up the Word of God and hear from God and, uh, and, and to uh, receive a word. So, the book of Zechariah, this is the setting. It takes place about 2,500 years ago, about, at about the time of 520 B.C., when the people of God were scattered due to exile because of the conquering of their city in Jerusalem. And it was at this time where Zechariah was one of the first to return back home to Jerusalem and would seek out to rebuild the temple and restore the city. The book of Zechariah as a whole can be divided in two halves. The first half is full of dreams and night visions, and then the second half is full of oracles and burdens that God gives to him to declare to the people. So what I would like for us to do as we arrive at the fourth vision of Zechariah in the first half of the book is begin at the top and read verses 1 through 3 briefly again. 
Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Why is the cross necessary? I have three points for us to take a look at this morning. The first is we are sinful. If this is your first time reading the passage of Zechariah, like me, you might be saying, whoa, what is going on? What am I reading? What's happening? And you're not alone. That was my first, second, third. And even sometimes as I go back to it, I have to go back and try and just recall what is happening right here. There's a lot going on. So let's first just take a look at observing the four characters that we find in the opening to this vision. First, we see Joshua. We are told he's serving as the high priest of the people of God at the time. Secondly, we see the angel of the Lord, who is functioning as an authoritative representative, as both the mouthpiece and hand of God. For Joshua, the high priest, to stand before the angel was indeed the dynamic equivalence of Joshua standing before God himself. There's so much more to say here. We could give a whole sermon series to the angel of the Lord. But if you would like to know more, I'm actually walking through a book called The Angel of the Lord, uh, written by two pastors, Matt Foreman and Dan Van Dorn, and we could chop it up later on The Angel of the Lord, if you like. The third character we find is Satan, told to us to be standing at the right hand and present for the purposes of making an accusation about Joshua. And then lastly, let us not forget Zechariah a living witness to it all. However, for all who are present, what is the primary subject of their discourse in coming together? In verse 3, the last two words, we find it. Filthy garments. The filthy garments of Joshua called an assembly of God and the heavenly host to talk about these filthy garments that he had on them. But, I mean, let's, let's really, let's, let's, let's think about this. Why or what is so heinous about filthy garments, right? So, you see, this filth that was on Joshua was, was just more than dirt. For dirt alone is not sinful, right? For God himself created man from the dirt, woman from the rib, and breathe into their nostrils the breath of life. So what is this filth that deserves such an objection before the Lord our God? It is sin. It is the very guilt and shame that follows a life defined by sin and disobedience to God. A rebel heart, rejection to follow and walk righteously with God. A shame so deep, so heavy, it steals away all breath in the body and leaves a man or woman speechless. Indeed, we only see Joshua the high priest in this vision, but we don't hear from him. He's silent. The verse right before this vision tells us, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. 
This silence and sweat takes me back to 2018, around this very same time in May, and it was game one of the 2018 NBA Finals. And although my stepdad, who is also present, would have loved for the Lakers to be there, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that year. It wasn't that year. <laughs> this was the year that LeBron was rooted in Cleveland, the Cavaliers, and they were going against their West Coast nemesis, the Golden State Warriors. It was the fourth quarter, game tied at 107 with four point seconds left in the game when J.R. Smith for the Cleveland Cavaliers would rebound a missed free throw made by his teammate George Hill, George Hill and make the infamous mistake of running away from the basket and running out the clock, forcing the Cavs to take the L in game one and ultimately lead to a 4-0 sweep and Cleveland losing the championship that year. After this mistake, all cameras were glued to J.R. Smith. And on the bench, you could see J.R. silent, sweating, speechless. That silence would go on for nearly, I think I saw a source that said, about two years. You see, our sin has a way of doing this to us, silencing us in our shame whispering in our ear to run, hide, and not acknowledge ourselves before God or others. Like Joshua and J.R., we are no different. As a matter of fact, you see, Joshua the high priest, as he was standing before the angel of the Lord, standing before God, was not only there to give an atoning sacrifice for his own sins, but one of the key functions of the high priest was to annually on the Day of Atonement go into this place called the Holy of Holies in the deep, deep crevices of the temple and tabernacle of God and to give an offering for all of the people of God and their sins. So, J.R. wasn't alone in his shame. I mean, imagine how George Hill felt. Right? He's the one who missed the free throw shot. And we are right behind them. I know I am. And I, and, and, and I ask you, what in your life is plaguing you and has brought you shame? Maybe you're ashamed of your poverty and the things which it produced. Maybe you're ashamed for having to feed your children the only thing you had left in the cabinet. Maybe you're ashamed of the fruit of your infidelity and sexual impurity. Or lastly, maybe you're ashamed of a time you quit on someone or something in your life when they were in need. We all left in our sins would stand before our holy God in filthy garments. Our sweat, our filth carries with it the sins deep within and made evident throughout our lives. Just like God told Adam after he committed him and Eve and the serpent, the, the very first sin, we are told that by now the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So I ask us again, why is the cross necessary? We are sinful. We sweat. So as we move on, let us observe the second necessity of the cross of Christ. Often forgotten for many of us who put our trust and have already made a confession is 
Christ is Lord and Jesus is King, in this vision, it's best we not fall asleep or remiss why the cross is necessary. Second point, we have an enemy. For Zechariah not only gives witness of the filthy garments on Joshua's back, but he speaks of another opponent to our right standing before God. He speaks of Satan, an ancient, ancient being who's lived for thousands and thousands of years, committed to the same purposes in and throughout many millenniums, one of which is exposed in this vision. What are we told in this vision of his appearance? He comes to attest before God that Joshua has sinned and comes to him wearing filthy garments. It's rather interesting to consider, right? Because for indeed Joshua came in filthy garments, bearing his sin and representing the sins of the people of God. So one might ask, what are we to make of Satan's accusations? Is he simply stating what is? Is he telling the truth? Is his accusations and actions acceptable before the throne? Absolutely not. For in verse 2 we read, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? You see, what can't be observed in this chapter, but what we're told in chapters 1 and 2, is that God will again choose Jerusalem. God chooses to wed himself to the people, draw near to them despite our filthy garments and current circumstances. God is committed to loving us. God is committed to dwell and live and hold our hand and walk with us in this life. In just the vision prior, Zechariah 2.5, God cries out, And I will be a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. But Satan is persistent to object the word of God, the word upon which truth and judgment is established and kept. For truly there is no truth in Satan. Yet he continues to deceive us that his venom is sweet, lust is love, and hot is cold. Satan's purpose is, is always and has always been to keep us in the fire. To be a burning stick cast away, live forever in death and destruction. Desiring that we remain trapped in hell fire. You see, hell, we don't, we don't speak of it much anymore. And I confess that's my own vocabulary. And I believe this is due to a trust in the grace of God and putting my faith and our faith in Christ on the cross. However, I don't think it's healthy or safe that we neglect its reality. Satan is rather content and will be pleased that we deny ourselves any acknowledgement of its existence. Satan loves neither hot or cold, but lukewarm temperatures. For he knows that the heat of death and fire of hell is his own eternal judgment. For God declares in Matthew 25 that hell was and is prepared for the devil and his angels. Yet the devil desires that this curse of hell not only fall on him and his host, but knows that all rebels who reject and deny God's grace offered in the cross shall too be eternally trapped in fire. But thank God he does not remain silent to Satan's accusations. 
and the schemes of the devil are not enough, for he testifies. In this vision, God reminds us of, of our position and location and that we shall not live in Satan's cities, trapped in the fire of hell, but again, that we should dwell in the city of God where he then will be a wall of fire about us, trapped in the fire of his protection, keeping all the fiery darts not to steal, kill, or destroy our faith, hope, and love, and salvation in Christ. So let us continue in verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him, and to him he said, It's sweet. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Mm. See, the Lord not only snatches us from the fire, exchanges our filthy garments, but then he dresses us. Here we read pure vestments, but I actually love the Christian Standard Bible's rendering of pure vestments. For we're told in the CSB that he gives us festive robes. I can't help when I'm thinking of festive robes. I'm thinking about our wedding night at the reception when we were dressed all in white in a tux, which you may think may be to you look sharp and look stiff, but my wife knows that those garments are made for dancing and rejoicing and for joy. And those are the garments that Christ gives us. There's actually an image that captures us on the dance floor. And as we're dancing on our wedding night, you also see those family and friends that were there to celebrate in this covenant that we entered into. And you see also the joy and the sharing and the celebration for this union. And in verse 5, Zechariah reminds me of what that would have been like. Zechariah is so excited. In most of these visions, Zechariah is also silent. He's just recalling what's going on. But in verse 5, we read Zechariah, so full of the excitement, says, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with filthy garments. He couldn't resist rejoicing in what God had done. So again, second point, we have an enemy, and then now we move to our final point. Why is the cross necessary? The Lord is a promise keeper. The Lord is a promise keeper. Rather swiftly, I'm going to move through verses 6 to 9 and trail for us these assurances and the promises that God makes to us. And the angel of the Lord, verse 6, solemnly assures Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those standing here. You see, what's helpful to note about this promise of God, of him assuring Joshua, if, if he would just follow him and love him, he would give him the right of access to serve in his courts is that there was no courts to be served in. At this time, the temple was utterly obliterated and destroyed from the Babylonian conquest that happened a couple of years prior. So in this promise, the Lord gives Joshua a promise of hope, of purpose, of work, of participation in his kingdom and his presence coming and being manifested on the earth. So I tell you, don't lose hope. 
Wait on the Lord. The Lord will provide for you if you will only follow him and love him with your whole heart. Now in verse 8, our next assurance and promise. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. The vision of Zechariah and the telling of the branch to come was not the first time God made known his branch coming. In Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16, he tells us this of the branch. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. You see, the branch to come would be responsible for the salvation of the people of God and the means by which they would declare the Lord is our righteousness. Let us continue in verse 9. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In a single day. Here we find our most explicit reference to the cross of Christ and our necessity of it. So there's a lot going on. We, we see a single stone which could be representative of the high priestly garments that Joshua would wear, would possess 12 stones, each 12 representing one of the tribes of Israel. And some believe this single stone to be representative of not only the tribes, but as the seven eyes would reflect a completion of God seeing all of the sins of the world and interceding on their behalf and removing the iniquity of all who would come. But... This single day, the depths of mystery, waiting, prophecy, expectation of fulfillment of God to Zechariah and all the world will be met in a single day. Our time is running short, but it's important that I read what happened on this day. On John, or excuse me, in the book of John, Chapter 19, verses 21, or excuse me, 23 through 30, I'll be reading about this single day and what happened. John 19, 23 through 30. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This is it. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. A lot of Mary's going on. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. 
And from that hour, the disciple took his own home. 28, after this, we see it again. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what happened on the cross? What happened on this single day? In one sense, a mother cried and witnessed her son, though innocent, murdered and crying out for the forgiveness of others in her own, the shedding of his blood. Indeed, as many of us have noted and honored our mother's last Sunday, even at the cross, we witness a formidable force of persistence and endurance of a mother's love. I thank you, Ma, for your, your presence in my life, even now. And Jesus would honor his mother with his last breaths to ensure she was cared for after his departure from the earth. Yet this act of kindness toward his mother was only but one expression of what his love would accomplish to ensure and grant us all eternal salvation and the welfare of our souls. At the cross, Jesus serves as the fulfillment of Scripture in accordance with these very promises declared to Zechariah in this vision. For at the cross, suspended above the earth, Jesus is lifted up as our servant king, the branch executing the justice upon which sins deserve sin and death. At the cross, Jesus becomes our great high priest, interceding, giving his very own life to sacrifice and exchange our filthy garments that we may be dressed in pure and festive robes. He invites us to enter eternal life and his kingdom come. Just as he began praying for you before he went to the cross, Jesus has never stopped praying and interceding for you. Even now he keeps your name on his lips in prayer. We are told as he is seated at the right hand of the Father, he continues to whisper in his ear, and he lives to make intercession for us. You see, at the cross, Christ's finished work tells us that he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west and taken our transgressions from us. For the promises of God are stronger than the promises of death and gravity trying to pull us six feet under the earth. So what are we to do? Trust in his life. Trust in his death. Trust in his resurrection. Trust in his triumph over Satan's accusations. Trust in his return to you. For the opening of the book of Zechariah says, God speaking, return to me and I will return to you. So again, I repeat our question and focus for this morning. Why is the cross necessary? The cross is necessary because the Lord is faithful to fulfill his promises to us. He is a promise keeper indeed. As I close and we read verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Two things briefly. In that day, in that day, from this point forward, God will continue throughout the rest of the book open with a promise in that day. 
What day is the Lord referring to? That day is already but not yet. You see, that day ranges from the cross of Christ until his return. For that day is today. That day we've entered the dawn of that day. And then lastly, fig tree. We're told that the Lord of hosts in that day will cause us to invite everyone to come under our vine and under our fig tree. Fig trees. I watched a Netflix series called Chimp Empire where it's taking place in the middle of the Ngogo forest in Uganda. And it's one of the largest populations of chimpanzees in the world. And as they're capturing the lives of chimpanzees, all of their emotions and actions and um, life, a lot of their time is spent at war. You see, the largest clan of chimps lived in the center of this forest. And at the center of this forest, there's a fig tree. And this fig tree would be the reasons at which every opponent from north, east, west, south would come and try to kill and steal and destroy them. So when we're told that we will invite under our fig tree, it's helpful to know what God does with the fig tree. It will no longer be representative of war. And then lastly, the fig tree will no longer be representative of our shame. You see, we're first introduced to the fig tree in the Garden of Eden, where fig trees were representative of our shame. And after Adam and Eve sinned, feeling shame, feeling naked, and the weight of their sin, we're told that they made clothing out of fig leaves. You see, to be clothed by God was for the people in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the dynamic equivalent of being covered by the blood of the cross of Christ. So I leave us with these questions. Have you brought your filthy garments of sin and shame before him? Do you deny yourself a life defined by the grace of God dressed in festive robes? And then lastly, have you put your faith and hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, hung from the tree, that we may wed our love to him as our Savior and our King, who rose from the dead, that we too may inherit eternal life? Let us pray. Father, We reach, Lord, for the hem of your garment. Lord, we thank you for the cross and all that you accomplished in your son, that we may no longer have to walk in shame and be defined by our sin and trapped in eternal fire, but that we can be clothed, Lord God, in festive robes, robes that have been washed in the blood of Christ, robes that are acceptable for the resurrection of our body and to live and to play, rejoice and dance in your kingdom come now and forever. We bless you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.